my views have changed pretty drastically about hell. And if I had to put a label on it, I guess I would say I believe in uh, universal reconciliation, that all people, all things will be reconciled back to God. Nowadays, I don't believe in hell. I don't think about it at all. There's enough hell on earth and I don't really need to believe in it in the afterlife anymore. Heaven and hell and many other pictures are simply metaphors for a kind of existence we cannot describe in any other way. Today, I think the annihilation theory is the most compatible with a merciful God and is the most biblically supported. Because if Judaism doesn't have eternal conscious torment, then where did Christians get it? I think that when we have certain views of hell, it can make our faith toxic. I don't believe in eternal conscious torture. I don't believe that hell is eternal separation from God. I believe that at some point after death, we all come in contact with the purifying, fiery love of God. I think that your view of hell is actually very important because if you really believe in eternal hell, it turns to take things over and it makes Christians more insular and judgmental. If you view God as loving, then you might be more inclined to love others. So I think uh, the view of hell is pretty important. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. We are talking about hell again. Last time we had a philosophical conversation about hell and kind of the options for afterlife for those that um, didn't go to the good place. Here's what I want to know, Tim. Jesus didn't talk about hell, right? Like he talked about Gehenna. Is that right? Like, and then there's these other terms like Sheol and like the, doesn't the Old Testament talk about like returning to the grave or returning to your fathers or like, so like what, what does the Bible actually say about hell? And yeah, where have we developed some of these ideas through the Bible? Where have we developed these ideas? Well, uh, it's sort of a surprisingly complicated conversation. It's, it'll end up simple. Um, but what we want to do is basically say that our, uh, concept of hell and the way that's been derived from the Bible has been way oversimplified and we're going to try to recomplicate it to, uh, have a sufficiently nuanced conversation about this. First, I think we should recap. So, so last conversation, we basically talked about, uh, brief highlight. I mean, we only got to like uh, 20% of what I wanted to get to, but of some, of the various theoretical ways to even construe hell. So Nate, why don't you give a, a stab at a recap? Okay. So there's like the eternal conscious torment where God is like torturing you for all of eternity. Yeah. There's, um, there's annihilationism where it's like God just destroys you and you're not, you, you, you are no more. There was the, like, uh, the CS Lewis hell is locked from the inside and, you're creating this place. It's of your own choosing and you, you could leave, but you don't want to. And that's why you're there. Um, and then there was, oh, some sort of like rehabilitative view where you could restore these people and they could then be in heaven because they need to actually change before they could be there. But anyways, those are, I don't know. Those are the, the main ones that come back to my head. Yeah, and then uh, basically, so I kind of bunched uh, eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, and part of C.S. Lewis's argument in one box, which is that of some sort of permanent separation between the heaven and hell, the insiders, the outsiders, uh, those two worlds are are separated and kept separated, uh, whether by death and execution in the annihilationist view by this torture chamber in the eternal conscious torment view or by essentially this sort of parsing out uh, where hypothetically people in hell could freely choose to enter heaven at any time, but they, they don't want to in C.S. Lewis's view. But then we kind of move towards, yeah, uh, temporary views where the idea is hell is less than forever for some who are able to allow hell to change them in some sort of way, uh, to transform them to be willing to, to choose uh, into heaven. So we kind of uh, looked at, even some of the rabbis had literally speculated as to how long that would take for most people, somewhere around a year or so, uh, several of them thought. Um, but that's basically the view where hell is sort of purgatorial. Uh, it's that idea that there's sort of this in-between state uh, to get people to the place of being willing to finally uh, repent. So in th- that idea 
opens the door to Christian universalism, which is to say, if if that's possible, and what we know of Jesus, you know, you've got all the parallels of, or, sorry, you've got all of the parables in the Gospels that Jesus tells of wanting to leave the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep or to go find that lost coin, right? But where do we get that idea that that all ends when you take your last breath? Like, why wouldn't he just keep doing that? Exactly. So a lot of people want to say if if what we learned about Jesus in his life and what he seemed to be revealing about uh, God's mercy and goodness towards humanity, God's self-sacrificial, never-quitting love for mankind and creation, if if that's true, then exactly, why would we think it would end at some uh, potentially nebulous point, right? And why? Are, who are we essentially to say that God can't succeed in doing what the Bible says God wants to do, which is to save everybody? This Tim, this is starting to sound a little bit, a little crazy, right? This is a little bit heretical now. So I just want to know why is this not just you trying to? Because that'd be really nice, right? If everyone like eventually would love God and be in the good place, right? It seems like the burden of proof is on is is on that side to say, okay, yes, that's what we naturally want to see happen. So how are you how do you know you're not just twisting the Bible to say that? Right. So so here's why, you know, I named David Bentley Hart. Uh, I wish you had more time to go into his argument. He grounds a lot of his argument in the fact that all of Christianity and Judaism is built on the idea that God created everything that exists, right? It's Genesis 1 and 2, this whole doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that God created from nothing. So philosophically, hell, if it exists, is something that God created. And so we talked kind of of the psychology of, you know, whether we could actually truly enjoy heaven while friends of ours or loved ones were suffering in hell. Um, But, Dave Bentley Hart goes even further, and he's pulling a lot of his philosophy, actually, from people like Gregory of Nyssa from 1,600 years ago. Uh, and he's saying that, A, the only way psychologically that we could experience heaven as a kind of blissful experience is if we no longer had our memories of all of those that we loved. And what that would mean is that we are no longer people. We are not our true selves and you may as well make up a new word for it. We're some sort of new mutant creature if we no longer have uh, the memory of our life here on Earth. His argument is that psychologically, we couldn't, most of us could not feel bliss if someone we deeply loved <laughs> was suffering. Uh, and therefore, you, you basically cannot, his argument is philosophically, unless all are saved, none can be saved. In heaven, philosophically. Well, yeah, but and that's kind of. Don't you need your brain to have memories? And so then you're saying we would have our brain, which would mean we'd be in the same form, which would mean what would really change. So I don't know. Aren't we? Aren't like? Isn't it more likely under this worldview that we would be some new form, and then we wouldn't have a brain, which means we might not have those memories? I don't know. Uh, n- no, <laughs> we don't need to go down this rabbit hole. But the paradigm in, in Jewish and Christian thinking is that we will be somehow new and yet continuous with the old. So the, the paradigm uh, ultimately is how the Gospels describe the resurrected Jesus, that somehow is something new, some sort of new, you know, the, the main case study of this is 1 Corinthians 15, which was a big one for the universalist patristics. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's, you know, little diatribe on, on what will happen. And we will somehow be these new spirit beings, right? We'll kind of be like the Elohim who are fit to live in heavenly space, but we will still be ourselves, right? So that's why you have this tension in the Gospels where it's a Jesus who can float through doors, yet has an open wound in his side, right? So somehow, that's the idea. How we're supposed to imagine that, no one really tells us. So like all the people that are like, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be so hot in heaven. Like I'm going to be like, that's not probably actually true. You're going to look just as like you do, <laughs> just like you do right now, huh? It, yeah, it's somehow the idea is that we are in a celestial body, but the whole thing is is based on the fact of a, of a bodily resurrection. The idea is, uh, and we'll, we'll get to this in a sec. The, remember, the two questions are, how will God fix the world? And then what happens to me when I die? So part of the response to that second question is, 
for a time, my spirit seems to go somewhere, basically to what we'll talk about, to Sheol, to the grave. But then my spirit and my body will be raised. That is the idea. And then I will receive judgment. So it's, you know, this idea of all the the good and the bad, the righteous and evil will be raised uh, and resurrected and then receive judgment and, and go their separate. So even, like you said earlier, actually even in the annihilationist view, to most, the idea is still, and this is <laughs> kind of a hard part to imagine, the idea is you've been dead for some hundreds or thousands of years, you're raised up and then told you're about to be executed again. <laughs> okay, I have a question. So... That I, I I get that you just kind of laid out in a couple sentences, sort of the your interpretation of what the the biblical authors are kind of imagining when they imagine how this all works. My question is: Did other nations also have similar stories for how this whole thing worked and what happened when we died, or is this pretty? unique to the near eastern world right i said this in the last episode every to to our knowledge that every civilization that we have records for the egyptians uh sumerians all of the the babylonians Assyrians, all of these uh, civilizations and cultures have strong similarities at many different points uh with israel's cosmology okay that's all i that's all i needed for now okay okay so then the next part of this question is part of my theological changing and growing over the last five ten years was discovering that the babylonians and some other nations had the had a flood story very similar to um the israelite flood story and that starts to make you think okay maybe whether or not this happened this event happened historically or happened this exact way isn't really the point kind of like our our episodes with tim mackie when we talked about some of this stuff but it's more so how are these authors the israelite authors portraying god and kind of spinning this story in in a way and what are they doing with it um and we can we can find out more about about god and and how they interpret all this through how they're doing that not so much is this camcorder footage of what actually happened and so learning that other nations had a similar story about this event, there probably, you know, was this, this pretty big flood that happened in their, in their area around this, you know, this time. And they all kind of had passed that story down and written about it or whatever. But what that does for a lot of people out there is, is make them question the historical accuracy or even just the accuracy of the story and more look at it at, at like, you know, what are they doing with this story? How are they how are they interpreting this and how are they, um, you know, picturing God throughout this whole thing, all that kind of stuff. And so my question is, since you're saying other nations at the time had similar stories of the afterlife, about a judgment, about, um, you know, a place that wasn't the good place, kind of like some of these type of things, shouldn't that, or, or wouldn't that just make someone also question the, I guess, accuracy of, this whole kind of picture of what happens to us in after we die. You, do you know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, I think I do. Uh, you know, w- one first thing, you know, we got a lot of slack when we did a episode and told people they don't <laughs> necessarily have to believe the Exodus was a, I think you mean flack. Uh, slack would be good, right? Cause then we would get a little bit of leash or a little bit of uh, <laughs> extra leash. <laughs> Um, True. Yeah, we were hit with shrapnel. <laughs> uh, when we essentially said uh, that you don't have to interpret the Exodus story as as camcorder footage to interpret the Exodus story as a faithful account of God liberating uh, Israel, we got flack for that. Oh yeah. the The difference though with this is like there's no there's no book. What do you of, mean like What do you mean like two people or I don't remember that. But okay, okay, we got uh, we got some flack. I read the emails. Uh, oh, and all the we got a slew of negative iTunes reviews recently. So if you guys are fans of the show, go okay, counter Tim, the Tim. fundamentalist uh, <laughs> army. When you say out to get us, so I still think that um, I was thinking about this in in my shower time the other day, which is my it's my uh, my thinking space. And now that I have two kids, um, 
it's really my only space, my only quiet space. But I was thinking about this. I feel like for every one piece, whether it's a, a friend of mine or, or whatever, or someone that emails in that happened to listen to the show, for every one person that's like, I don't know about this, or hey, this was offensive to me in this way, or whatever, I feel like we get like 50 to 100 people that aren't that way. So when you say we get... Um, we received some flack for that. I don't know. I, I kind of remember one or two emails, but wasn't like this big outpouring. Anyways, we're still alive. We're doing okay. No death threats. (laughs) No, I just mean like, I I think, I think that, uh, that gives us perception that like we have, we have 10 people that are like, yeah, keep going. And like this onslaught of negative negativity. Um, and I, that's just not the case. It's the complete opposite. All right. I'll, I'll try to not be cynical. I focus on names. <laughs> uh, okay, let, let me try to help us get organized here because we're all over the, all over the map. So uh, the difference between this conversation about hell and the conversation we had about the Exodus event as attested in the book of Exodus is we're not talking about like the book of hell. Right, we we don't have that book in the Bible. There's no singular story or narrative or singular teaching. What we're actually trying to uncover is what is the cosmology, what was the cosmology of the various authors who contributed to writing the Bible. In other words, what did these various authors believe about hell and afterlife, a future judgment? What we'll see is that. Either these authors believed various different things at various stages, or they were open-handed enough to be willing to say things that were contradicting to others. So the fact of the matter is, you can look at various passages in both Old and New Testament and find evidence that the, the writer was trying to communicate different ideas of hell. And so my, my case in recapping, if say we take uh, for now, just kind of three categories uh, or, okay, say, say four. So one is eternal conscious torment. The reason that became the traditional view uh, for the last 1500 years is because you have some of these dire fire and brimstone uh, threatening texts, which use language of like the worm that never dies, the fire that's never extinguished that that people interpreted and sounds a lot like some sort of ongoing everlasting experience of punishment. Okay, so you take those texts and you go, yeah, those seem to be making the case that this author, for instance, the writer of the book of Revelation, where some of the the two of the, the most problematic passages that sound like they're talking about eternal conscious torment are in the book of Revelation. It sounds like the author of that book had some sort of ongoing torment in his head. Okay. Then you have a slew of other texts that people have looked to and said, but wait a second, these passages make it sound like hell will be something that happens once, basically this annihilation or the end. It's basically a a thing of destruction. So for instance, you have uh, (laughs) one of the most clear ones is 2 Peter 2. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of of what God was going to do. So I'll just uh, read it. And, and then eventually we'll get into some translation issues here. But it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, this is referring back to the divine beings and all the weird Genesis 6 stuff, but sent them to, I won't say hell, even though that's what the NIV says, but Tartarus, it's the only time that word is used, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So, so what did Peter just do? What is Tartarus? (laughs) What does that mean? Sounds like a... 
Uh, Pop-Tart startup or something. <laughs> it does sound like a San Francisco tech company. They uh, deliver Pop-Tarts to you. You don't even have to toast them. <laughs> that would be a San Francisco Tart-tart thing. It's like, you don't even have to toast them. Like, I know that like it's really getting in the way of your life. Like, having to push that button down and wait that 30 oh, seconds. But. Uh, no, we'll get there in about a half hour. Uh, we'll get to Tartarus in a half it, hour? Yeah. Oh, okay. Put a pin in that. Whether or not everyone is still here for that uh, <laughs> is yet to be determined. I'm just like gone and you're just talking. So stick around if you want uh, It is cold Tartarus. in the garage right now. So if I'm just gone and if you notice that no one's like talking back, that probably, that's probably what happened. I just left. Just me talking to myself in the shed. <laughs> uh, okay. So what did Peter just do? He just referenced the Noah story, the flood story, and the Sodom and Gomorrah story as examples of how God was able to rescue Lot and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, rescue Noah, and destroy everyone else. And he uses that as a paradigm for the future judgment. Because, so just think about those paradigms, right? Did, did the people who died in the flood and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, are they still burning today? Right? Like they're not. People died. So what he just did is he gave examples that very clearly uh, paint the picture of annihilationism or in that ballpark of views uh, of hell. Again, that's in the Bible, right? So people aren't making that up. No one, I'm not spinning second, second Peter. That's the clear, easy sense of interpretation. And then you have yet others uh, that very clearly depict a sense and a hope for uh, what we've called Christian universalism. So uh, what we're talking about with David Bentley Hart, he roots his primarily in Genesis 1 and 2, in the idea of creation. He said, if God creates everything, then philosophically, all secondary causes can be traced back to their first cause. So we talked about the psychology of, if I'm in heaven and, and you're burning in hell, I don't know if I'm going to be able to really enjoy that place. But, but then think about the fact that if God has created and is willfully sustaining and artificially <laughs> keeping that place in operation— that's just not about my ability to enjoy heaven. That says something about God. So how can we say that God is good, God is just, God is merciful, and simultaneously say that that is what God will be doing for the rest of eternity? So he roots part of his argument there. Some of the patristics, they looked at 1 Corinthians uh, 15, and there's a passage that talks about, says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so God may be all in all. This is a big one for Gregory, a big one for some of the uh, Orthodox uh, church world. How can God be all in all? Or similarly, how can every tongue confess and knee bow? if some of them are supposedly sitting in the next room over being tortured, right? How can you claim that all of existing creation is going to worship Yahweh or in, in another passage in Colossians that all of creation will be reconciled to God? These are the New Testament proclamations of what they considered part of the gospel. So how can you say that that is true and also say that, well, Actually, not all of creation. Actually, like 95% of it's going to be tortured next door, right? So my point here is that... See, I always thought it was like they, they bow down and they say yes, and then they have to go. <laughs> then they like, you know, and then everyone in the back rows, exit now. <laughs> I always pictured that. Right. Uh, the, main, the main point here, you can read people who say have moved from an, an eternal conscious torment view to an annihilationist view. And a lot of those people say there are 20 or 30 verses... You know, for instance, the depiction that there's a line and it's either life one way or death the other way. Uh, there are 20 or 30 verses that'll make it sound like hell is a kind of annihilation, like that Second Peter one we just read. And, and maybe two in the book of Revelation that sound like eternal conscious torment. You have others like David Bentley Hart will say there are probably 45 verses in the New Testament that if you just read them, you would, you would be convinced that the writers uh, were universalists. Again, not the universalists that believe there is no hell or there is no judgment, but universalists in the sense that God will one day succeed through judgment in, in saving and transforming everyone. And th- those same people say there are a couple that sound like eternal conscious torment. 
The point is, most of the people that are honest aren't going to say it's either all this or all that. They're going to say, if you just read this verse, yeah, that's what you'd come away with. You'd come away with feeling like hell is going to be eternal punishment. But if you just read this verse, you're going to come away feeling like hell is going to be the end of life. Okay, gotcha. Existence. Gotcha, gotcha. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Can I, okay, one one little interjection there. Mm-hmm. When you said God will eventually succeed through judgment, that sounds a little bit like the you know torturing a person to get secrets out of them or something. Like you, if you yes, if you torture someone long enough, they will eventually come to the other side and be like, okay, fine, just stop. I'll worship you. Like that to me still kind of sounds monstrous. So is there? Do you mean something else than what is coming into my head when I hear? through judgment. I'm I'm not trying to get you to think anything right now. I'm just trying to paint the picture of the the pool is way bigger than we've been told gotcha. it was. Okay. Right. So in our world, in the evangelical world, eternal con- and still there are all these that think that if you Al Mohler for one will say that if you move from believing that hell is eternal conscious torment and then using that eternal conscious torment as the main uh, fear tactic to get people to believe in Jesus that you are straying from the gospel and his pushback against this whole new wave of people, conservatives, uh, moving towards an annihilationist view. And then you'll have other people uh, like David Bentley Hart, uh, who, when they encounter C.S. Lewis's view, who like (laughs) the Pipers of the world, you know, they love C.S. Lewis. They hate what he said about hell. Um, But even the David Bentley Hart of the world will say C.S. Lewis's view is completely illogical and, uh, and so rooted in tradition, he wants nothing to do with it. So you just and all these people are Christians, right? You've got a, a broad spectrum, and all of th- all of this, C.S. Lewis, David Bentley Hart, Al Mohler, they're all pulling this from interpretations of Scripture. So I we do this show because we have opinions on which interpretations are better, <laughs> both out of biblical uh, interpretive practices and out of the the toxicity, the fruit of those beliefs, right? So personally, I'll just this isn't the the point of the show. I'll just say an annihilationist view to me is way more uh, palatable than an eternal conscious torment view. And Christian universalism that many in the Eastern Orthodox tradition at least get close to if don't outright believe uh, is to me the most loving and empathetic or empathy driven view. Okay. But I hear someone saying like, but who, but who cares like what you want it to be? Which one sounds the best to you? Like, what about the truth? I hear this. Right. So, okay. So I, they're few, but what they say is like, we want the truth, but what's the truth though? So Tim, what's the truth? (laughs) Okay. So for right now, this is one of the few times where I don't actually care about my own opinion (laughs) and I don't, uh, put this on record. I don't really care uh, in this moment on this podcast. Uh, whether people feel or think the same thing I do about hell. Here's what I want to do. Even the word hell is a symbol for how much we've oversimplified all of this. Okay, so the first thing I'm trying to do is paint the picture that, like I said, the pool is bigger. The the amount of possible views, you know, one uh, quip that people sometimes make about uh, older streams of theology, for instance, uh, in the eastern uh, wing of the church is... You know, their doctrine was the Apostles' Creed. That's doctrine. Right. You say that now and people are like, okay, and like, what else? <laughs> right. That's like, The Apostles' Creed is pretty simple. Yeah. Jesus died for us, descended into hell, was raised. Okay. Uh, beyond that, what hell is, is not doctrine. It's up for interpretation. 
So that's very different than the stream that, that we've been in, where a specific view and then how that view is used and how that view intersects with what we think Jesus accomplished on the cross, all of that is, is not just doctrine, but then that doctrine is connected to salvation, right? Some of the calls we received of, of people sharing their stories was that this topic was, is so scary to be on the table because to get this topic wrong, the way we've been trained, it feels like potentially you're risking losing salvation, getting getting yeah, it wrong on totally. hell. Mm-hmm. So that, I just want to say, that's an evangelical way of thinking. That is a point of evangelical indoctrination. Feel free to get up and walk away from that. Where that takes you, I, I'm not overly concerned. The point is none of us know for sure. So you've got people out there that are going to make philosophical or theological or scriptural arguments uh, and strongly. And I think they're all worth listening to. And and there are voices that should be listened to more than others, uh, especially for what those views end up saying about God and about Christianity and how they end up shaping our hearts to feel towards our neighbors. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's like you can choose for yourself what to believe. The Bible doesn't tell us here's the outline and none, none of us knows, right? So here, what I want to do is look at how the Bible talks about this thing called hell. Is this, so is this where we is, do the Tartarus? Is this where we get to the, <laughs> the Pop-Tart startup? Soon, oh, yes. Dang it. Okay. Uh, but just so there is no thing called hell in the Bible. Like th- there isn't, uh, we'll get, th- there isn't hell. There are various ideas that it wasn't until several hundred years after Jesus, long after the scriptures were, were written, that people consolidated various ideas into one concept called hell. So what I want to do is back up, unpack those ideas, see the different meanings, and then move forward. Erasing Hell with Tim Ritter. Here we go. <laughs> it's a... Okay, so you mentioned the Tartarus thing. I know we're going to get there eventually, but what other ways does do the biblical writers talk about this thing? But so before we consolidate it all into one, like what 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 actually what are the options out there? Like what are the different things? And did it change? Like did someone believe this thing and then eventually they believe this other thing or they talked they, you know, they talked about it this way and then another writer talks about this. Like what's going on there? Right. So, uh, first piece is like I said, there are two questions. We've lumped them together and pretended, I think, or maybe just not thought about it. So it seemed like there's one question about what is the afterlife. So it's like what what happens after we die was the one. And then Mm -hmm. what happens to like the bad people and the judgment? Like, what is that? Like, what is that thing? Yeah. And the bigger question being how, how will God fix the world? Answer one is he'll have to God will have to intervene. And part of that intervention is there, there are evil people here doing evil things and evil people who did evil things in the past, evil people right now who are scheming to do evil in the future. For God to fix this place and to heal humanity, to restore the world, God needs to deal with those people, right? Uh, so then you get into uh, this piece of judgment. And that's where I said, I'm not even going to give much airtime to you. I'm, I'm really not at all interested in uh, Christians who have come to a, what I would call a liberal open universalist view, which is simply that there is no judgment because I don't think you have Christianity without judgment. And I, I more importantly, don't think you have justice, uh, without judgment, change, change your views on hell. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but in terms of stripping the idea of ultimate justice, I don't think that helps, uh, anybody. So for instance, Martin Luther King, uh, has had six principles of nonviolence um, that the King Center still today uh, uses these as as the pillars of nonviolent resistance. And the sixth one on the list, the last principle, says, and I quote, nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of judgment. The nonviolent resistor has deep faith that justice will eventually win. Nonviolence believes that God is a God of justice. So, you know, there's that line that uh, the universe bends towards the arc of justice, right? And I think the idea is, like, we don't actually know if that's true. Like, we don't know if the world is all that more just today than it was yesterday. You can make arguments uh, for that. But 
at the heart of what Martin Luther King was saying is to have hope to actually work toward justice in a nonviolent manner following the, the nonviolent way of Jesus, you have to believe that there is this current <laughs> of justice or in, in the line here that the universe is on the side of judgment. Uh, you can't just believe that everybody's going to get away with whatever they're going to get away with. Uh, you can't build a life of justice based on that sort of uh, futile view. So that whole piece to me, like you've got that idea that, uh, that God has to help save the world by judging it. But the whole idea this, where we get eschatology, the word eschaton, kind of the end of the age and the new age, what that meant was that that time is somewhere in the future, right? A lot of people made the case that you can look at Paul's writings and he thought that Jesus was going to return very, very quickly. <laughs> he thought the end of the age was going to happen in his own lifetime or in many people's lifetimes uh, that around them. The point was it's some future event. It's going to be the end of this age. God will enact judgment and a new age will begin. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be created. So the question is what then the second question, what happens if I die before that event, <laughs> before mm. that point in time? And, right. and what happens to all of the other people who have died in the past? And uh, so Paul asks that question and tries to answer that question in part in some of his writings. But Jews and non-Jews, like you're asking, Nate, other ancient Near Eastern cultures were, of course, just asking the question of what happens to us when we die. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like five year olds ask that question without being taught to. Does Cam know that? things die yet uh animals uh he doesn't know about i don't think he knows that we die yeah no. yeah yeah same with lucy she doesn't really understand i think a worm died she had she has this little bug container and like her worm died or something and so she kind of she still doesn't really know what it means i don't think but yeah but that, that people she hasn't been that's gonna be i mean that, i just think about like how traumatizing that really is to think that as a kid to be introduced to death for the first time it's it's kind of totally. huge he, he came home from the museum with my mom and uh, there was this eagle exhibit and they had a, a dead deer. You know, it's like fake, but in the uh, exhibit to look like what eagles would be feeding on. And uh, he came home. He's like, Dad, the deer died. The deer died. Oh. And I was like shocked. I was like, oh, my gosh, I like had just entered a world of like parenting and having to comfort him. And he said it like six times and I finally go, Cam, does that make you sad? He goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> oh, okay. So I have a sociopathic three-year-old. <laughs> uh, so good. problem sort of averted and potentially much more disastrous problem uh, looming. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> okay. So what happens to us after we die? The answer is the Hebrew word sheol. And that word essentially uh, has a whole bunch of uh, connotations, imagery connected to it. Uh, the pit, the grave, uh, the, the pit becomes connected to cisterns, which are these dugout uh, wells for holding water, uh, be just because they're literally in the ground, under the ground, uh, the abyss. Uh, so the idea is it's basically very similar to any sort of underworld uh, ideology. Uh, it's called the land of oblivion, the land of no return in Second Samuel. Uh, it's basically, it's used 65 times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's basically where when we die, our bodies go into the ground, which is obviously somehow connected to this uh, ideology. And some part of me lives on in this sort of half-life state. So it's not good. It's not like I'm just living it up uh, as if I was here in, in my own life. People want to avoid Sheol. Uh, there are all these cries, you know, when, uh, for instance, like Hezekiah finds out he's sick. He basically laments that he's going to live his life, the rest of his remaining years, at the gates of Sheol, hmm. like, on, like right on the edge of uh, death. Uh, so it's basically, it's death. It's this sort of like shadow existence, this sort of half-life semi-human existence where you kind of don't really know, but maybe there's some consciousness of the world. For all you Stranger Things fans out there, it's the upside down. The upside down, yeah. Basically, so it's uh, this concept of Sheol is completely distinct from the idea of hell as a place of punishment. 
Okay. It's basically synonymous with death. So, and especially this like pit cistern metaphor. So like Joseph, when he gets thrown into a pit, that's a, and then he is lifted up out of the pit. That's a way of narratively depicting that Joseph died and rose again. Jeremiah gets thrown into a pit down in the ground. He doesn't die, but he goes under the ground into the dirt and then comes up. And it's a way of presenting Jeremiah as a type of resurrected uh, character. Mm. So Sheol is basically, you're dying (laughs) and you're sort of living on uh, and you're sort of not. And so uh, in Greek world, you have very similar concept of the underworld uh, called Hades. And uh, Hades was both the name of the god that, apparently like ruled over this underworld and then the place was just given that name uh so so then you actually have sections both in revelation in the new testament and in job and in psalm 88 uh where it's almost a direct parallel there's a word uh, abaddon in hebrew and it says uh, there's an angel of the abyss and it's revelation 9 11 uh there's an angel of the abyss who acts as king over them named abaddon which is just the Hebrew word destruction. And his name is Apollyon in Greek. And then that same thing, uh, being, gets referenced in, in Job. And it's basically a replacement to Hades. So they're literally just borrowing from Greek mythology? Cosmology. I mean, think about it. Like, everyone's asking these questions, right? <laughs> like, everyone's trying to figure out, like, what is life? Like, what, how does this work? Like, what happens to us when we die? And they shared some pieces and they differed in other pieces. Um, But the idea is that it's basically this parallel, vague understanding. No one is claiming they have the exact details on Sheol. That's why you don't have, again, either a book of Sheol or the chapter of Sheol or your map and outline in the back of the book, uh, you know, showing you like your place in Sheol. You are here. The mall. Yeah. (laughs) You've got a lot of uh, people that eventually get bored and speculate on stuff like that, but it's not part of the uh, the biblical text. So the interesting piece is that the Septuagint was the original translation from Hebrew into Greek of the first five books, the Torah of the Hebrew Bible, and then eventually the entire Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. Well, when it was translated from Hebrew to Greek, not only was the concept of Sheol similar to the concept of Hades, but they just used the word Hades to translate the word Sheol in most places. And then, as you probably remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. So in the New Testament, when someone is talking about where you go after you die, before God's judgment, they use the word Hades. It's used 10 times. But here's the problem. When you read your Bible in English, it says the word hell. And it also says the word hell when the word Tartarus is used, which means something totally different. And it also says the word hell when the word Gehenna is used, which is very, very different. Okay, wait, wait, wait. What, where does hell even come The word hell. This word that they're all like morphed into, where does that even come from? That's a good question. Uh, it's Old English. So I believe the King James. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I could be wrong here. If someone fact checks me and uh, knows better, then please email me. But I'm, I suspect that the old King James uh, was the first time this word showed up. Tim's notes are very long um, on on this episode, but this is not included in it. I always try to like you know break the notes and and find something that you know you had didn't study. Okay, so there's there's multiple words here that the biblical writers are using. Some from like Greek, some from a uh, Pop-Tart startup. So why do they just say hell for all of them? Okay, so I, I can give the old King James slack, not flack, slack, <laughs> because biblical scholarship uh, was a long ways off hundreds of years ago. I cannot give modern translations slack on this. Uh, at this point, the reason three different words in the New Testament are all translated as hell is because New Testament translators don't want to make us uncomfortable by breaking away from tradition of one singular idea of hell. So they're actually making a decision to keep tradition, even though it's from several hundred years past the writing of these texts, to let that tradition shape the meaning that they're giving in English words 
rather than the original in, intention of the authors. If you do any basic studies in any of the Bible software or any of the uh, Bible dictionaries, there are very clear separations between all these words, and they show that they mean very different things. But you never get there when you're just reading through this stuff uh, in plain English. I mean, everyone knows that. Like Anyone who knows anything about studying the Bible knows that, but we just all kind of agree to not. like Like no one actually talks about this stuff. Right. So, okay, so first one, you got the first word is Hades. That word is related to the first question. What happens to me after I die? I go somehow in some place that becomes essentially this waiting place. Once the idea of resurrection becomes more and more popular throughout uh, the Old Testament texts and then into the intertestamental period by the time of Jesus, you start getting language that Hades is this temporary place that we will be raised up from. And so then in the New Testament, the belief is that Jesus descended into Hades to liberate the imprisoned spirits that have been there from dying in the past. And Jesus now holds the keys to death in Hades, is what it says in Revelation 1, 18. In other words, he can let everybody out because Jesus uh, is the ultimate human, the vindicated human, who pioneered through death, he now has the keys to let people out of Hades. So do you remember the, the weird thing in Matthew? Oh, yeah, where like Jesus is resurrected <laughs> and then a bunch of people just like go free, like all, a bunch of dead people just <laughs> yeah. like start running away. Like, Yes. I've never and, heard someone talk about that, like any compelling way. And all the churches said, let's never talk about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the idea. Literally, Matthew's just like, oh, yeah, and all these like hundreds of people came up out of the grave and walked around through town. And because of that, people thought Jesus was the son of God. So where does that idea come from? That idea comes from the idea that when you die, we're waiting around to be raised up from that death. And when Jesus died, he spent three days in Sheol, in Hades, in the grave, and then brought people up out with him. He was the first one to be resurrected from death, but the first of many, right? Why do I remember people fighting so hard about whether or not Jesus descended into hell or not? It's, I don't want to get into it. It's the stupidest argument. The Apostles' Creed says, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. This would be Hades, if you were to ask people to get specific. The third day he rose again from the dead. So just look at the logic of the Apostles' Creed, right? This is almost 2,000 years old now. Uh, He died, was buried in in the ground, in a tomb, in dirt. And at that point, he descended to Hades, because that's what happens when you're buried in the ground. And then he rose three days later. So the early beginning understanding is that what Jesus experienced during death was death. (laughs) He was dead for three days. And what happens when you're dead is you exist in Hades. So the argument is because over whether Jesus descended into hell or not is in large part because we have this construct of hell. And then people are like, wait, why did God punish Jesus in hell for three days? Like, how does that make sense? How do you, that's not what it's saying. (laughs) Jesus went to death for three days. He went into the abyss. He went into the grave. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the other question though is, How is God going to fix the place? What is judgment going to be like? And then we have a totally separate word. So the way Hades is the answer to what happens to us after we die, Gehenna is a word. It's basically just a transliteration of a Hebrew word, the Valley of of Hinnom. Wasn't that like the trash heap outside of Jerusalem? Yeah, totally. I think this has been making its rounds uh, recently and becoming more uh, well-known. First, you have a few different uh, stories, Old Old Testament, referring to the Valley of, of Hinnom as the place where fires were burning because people were, were burning human bodies in child sacrifice to Molech. And then in Jesus' day, and the hundred years or so leading up to Jesus' day, uh, this valley, which is just outside of Jerusalem, was uh, the trash refuse heap. We didn't have, you know, modern trash facilities, so they would burn their refuse. And so, like, what do you have? You have this, remember, the concept of heaven is the new Jerusalem, <laughs> the, the perfect holy city that's protected from the outside. It's got, you know, the strong walls so that no one uh, can destroy the place. But it's this imagery of, like, evil won't be in there. So it'll be this, this city free of evil, uh, empowered to rule the world. 
it's the perfect pairing to <laughs> Jerusalem's trash dump, which is uh, a, a burning pile of crap, right? Mm. So Jerusalem becomes the image for the new world, the new heaven, the new earth. Gehenna is just this loaded, perfect imagery for the anti-paradise, right? So the new Jerusalem is to be the new Garden of Eden, uh, the, the, the paradise. Uh, and Gehenna is the anti-paradise or the, like the anti-life, uh, the anti-heaven. So if you just think about it, for anybody who's living near Jerusalem, for any Judean, this has become a loaded cultural uh, term. Uh, you know, I tried to come up with an example. You might have a good one. I didn't have any that didn't just end up sounding derogatory to some town in California I don't like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. It's Bakersfield. <laughs> it's Fresno. Right. I made a joke about Disneyland last time. Say everyone was as introverted and crowd shy <laughs> as I am and does not like spending time in hot Los Angeles uh, with millions of people around. And because it's DMV. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The DMV is a good one. Better than Disneyland. So, <laughs> no one. I haven't met anyone. I don't even think any people that work there are like, yeah, DMV, let's go hang out. <laughs> so it'd be like saying you, you're a good person. I hope you end up in the new Jerusalem and paradise and you over there. I hope you live in the DMV forever or as Jesus would say to some people, you are a son of the DMV. That's how much of a jerk you are. <laughs> and your number's never getting called. <laughs> right. So again, this is hard to see if you're just reading English translation. If you have any sort of, uh, if you read this digitally, you can like double click and see the Greek word behind. So when you see hell, you can do a little double click and see whether this is Hades or Gehenna. Basically, all of the scary judgment texts, or to put it differently, anytime Jesus gets angry, and starts yelling and threatening people, he's talking about Gehenna. And essentially, anytime Jesus sees evil, he starts yelling about Gehenna. And, and this is just another reason for saying a, a Christianity without judgment is a, is a neutered uh, ideology for the elite, right? Jesus believed that one of, the, one of the key pieces to good news for the world was that evil religious oppressors like the people who killed him and the people who were stealing money from the poor and uh, co corroborating with the state power to keep their own people down, uh, the Pharisees and, and the rulers, the Herods of the world, that these people were going to experience something like life in that burning trash heap. Okay, so let's take a specific story. He goes into the temple. He starts flipping tables. Does he say something there about this? Uh, yeah, let's see. So I'll read a few examples. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, so here we're talking about judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Again, that word is Gehenna, the fire of Gehenna. So this isn't about the question of, hey, Jesus, what will happen to my body and my soul when I die? This is Jesus getting really mad, seeing evil, and saying, you're in danger of experiencing utter torment like if you're in that fire pit over there, right? Or if a few verses later, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. So, because, because I'm not interested in trying to get anybody to like move to my opinion right now, I'm not even going to try to say whether I think, you know, Jesus sounds nice or, or not nice in these passages. These passages sound scary, right? Uh, there's another in Matthew 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. So Gehenna is an image for, for God's judgment on evil. It's very separate from Hades, which is simply a holding place answering the more pragmatic question, the, almost like the mathematical question now that so many billions of us have been alive on this earth, is, is where do we all go when we die and what do I experience? So here's part of why it's absolutely crazy that, that the Bible translates these words as hell. The book of Revelation says that hell gets thrown into hell. <laughs> the book, book of Revelation uh, is, is using this uh, imagery, 
Revelation 20, uh, 13 through 14 is the image. And actually, I think we're all familiar with this. Uh, it's one that I remember singing and celebrating in churches. Hades and death gets thrown into Gehenna. Uh, Hades <laughs> gets thrown into the lake of fire. So fire is this image uh, of judgment, painful, harsh judgment on evil. Uh, starts way back in the Old Testament, goes into the New. Again, to get into the ECT versus annihilationist view, some passages were interpreted of like, oh, the fire is burning forever and will never be put out, so it's this ongoing torment. Most other people said, no, fire is just an imagery for, for harsh judgment that leads to destruction, right? So when Sodom and Gomorrah burned, they're not still burning, they burned down and they've been dead for a several thousand years now, right? But to move beyond that, what, what Revelation has in, in mind is part of the end of where all this is headed is Hades and death itself gets thrown into Gehenna to be judged. Like, what's the logic here? Basically, if we translate this according to how they've translated the rest of the, uh, the New Testament, you say hell gets thrown into hell. The point is that death wasn't supposed to be here. Death is the last enemy to be overcome, right? Mm. To heal humanity. Yeah. Hades is simply the place connected with death. That's just where you go <laughs> when you die. And it doesn't need to be here. It's not part of you know the, the plan of creation because death wasn't part of the plan of creation. So when Jesus and God fix everything, they will actually, the last thing they will be fixing through judgment is death is death and Hades and it will be gotten <laughs> eliminated because it has no need anymore because no one will, will be dead and need to be living there. Right. right? So you basically have these two concepts and, and here's what like to get back to the, the fear thing where we started this conversation of like, there's this terrible tension in Christianity that it's supposed to be eliminating fear. And, but what it's been for so many of us is producing this fear is you basically have fear of death, which Hebrews 2 says is the thing that has enslaved humanity, and Jesus came to liberate us from that fear. Like, that's what's wrong with us is we're afraid of dying, one of the main things, and Jesus came to liberate us from that. Right. But then you have this other thing, the fear of the Lord, which Jesus and Paul and that same author of Hebrews, they're, they're in no way saying that that should go away. So what that means to them, fear of the Lord, is the fear that there will be judgment, that you cannot do evil in this world and get away with it. You know, even this, just this morning, I was reading uh, Thurman's uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, uh, and he has this beautiful line uh, as he's trying to encourage, this was way back early 20th century, trying to encourage marginalized, oppressed, disinherited, uh, enslaved people, or socioeconomically enslaved people, uh, to live beautifully courageous uh, lives. He said, basically, what we need to do is be less afraid of people, our oppressors, uh, and fear God. And what he means by that is to be like ruthless, ruthlessly committed to nonviolence, <laughs> to, to doing good in the face of evil, uh, to being better than they're trying to make us be, right? Hmm. So that's what he means is like fear of God is integrity. It's being, it's being a good person because you don't think you can get away with victimizing and abusing your neighbor. Uh, because you know that if you do that, one day you'll be held accountable for it. That stays in place as much for Christians as it does for non-Christians. Like being saved, praying this, the prayer, whatever that means, in the mind of all of the New Testament writers, does not mean you're supposed to eliminate that fear, because we all, again, this is Paul, will face a judgment for our actions, right? The thing that's called the fear of death that Jesus and Christianity is supposed to eliminate us from is connected with Sheol, so the fear of the Lord is connected to Gehenna. It's this idea of judgment. Fear of death is connected to what we all just intrinsically fear. It's like, am I going to lose everything that's ever meant anything to me? Will I ever get to see my loved ones again? Will life have any meaning or will it all just be hevel? Like, what is this experience called death? Like, will life continue on after this? Is it all just blackness and meaninglessness? Do I just go into the void? Hmm. So the idea inherent in, in the Christianity of, of the resurrected Christ is that we can stop being afraid of that because we can look forward to a paradise life after this life. Uh, the Gehenna idea, that's all connected to, to Sheol or Hades. The Gehenna idea is that all of us, Christian or non-Christian, will, will one day face accountability from, from a higher power than ourselves. 
And if, and if we are an evil victimizer of those around us, uh, we will have to deal with that. So you can see how those two views have gotten lumped together into what we call hell, <laughs> right? But you can see how if you parse them back, they're two pretty different ideas, especially if you know, the book of Revelation can imagine hell being cast into hell. Uh, then it certainly seems like we should back up and, and separate these things a little bit, especially if the fear connected to both of these ideas is totally different and one is supposed to maintain and one is supposed to go away. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, that's an important piece, especially as we talk about, like, you know, the fear-mongering and fear tactics in uh, conservative uh, evangelicalism. Okay. This is a lot. Mm-hmm. And we had we had planned maybe two episodes. I think we're going to need at least one more to talk through all this stuff. Because I just had a question that um, I'm not going to uh, have you answer now because we need to end this episode. But you said evil victimizers of those around us. Those are going to be the people that are judged. Aren't, aren't we all evil victimizers of those around us, even in small ways? And then at what level on that... You know, this is what this is where it's compelling to just say, "Hey, it doesn't matter what you've done. You're all sinners. You're all, you know, horrible, rotten sinners, and you're in need of. There's nothing you could do, even if you tried to do good your whole life and you never did anything wrong. You already have a sin nature. They have an answer for that too, right? So, I we got to talk about this, but let's do that next time on the Hell series as we continue. If you have any questions or pushbacks or thoughts or want to share your story you can do that all at almostheretical.com if you want to help us continue making more of these shows you can give a couple bucks a month to help and you can do that there as well just click the give button in the corner subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode tim do you have anything else to say we didn't get to tartarus so tune back in next oh time for... okay yeah 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 the, the pop tart startup next time we'll do it <laughs> all right later friends if you want to help us start that pop tart startup uh, you can give. <laughs> I think it's going to have to be drones, right? So like drones and they just come like right Pop-tart to your window deliveries? in your office. You reach out yeah. the window, you grab it. Yeah. And then you just, it's warm. And, yeah. <laughs> Peace, y'all.